Morning, everybody. Ooh, morning, everybody. Uh, 48 weeks to Christmas. Uh, we're on week three of uh, High Impact Church. It's still not too late uh, to get going on the daily Bible readings. Uh, start at the beginning of Acts and race through it uh, together with us. It's still not too late to get plugged into a small group. If you thought God did some good stuff in church last Sunday, uh, he did some good stuff in our small groups this week. Uh, thank you to those of you who've talked about it and fed back some of the exciting things that have been happening there. And it's probably still worth, if you've got a, a spare bit of time, just to plug into uh, the message last week or the week before. If you missed either of those, you can get those online or from CDs at the back of the church. We're in Acts chapter 2, as we've heard, read page 1094. I hope you've got it open uh, in front of you. Please do. And as we've been hearing, the church uh, was empowered by the Holy Spirit and began to make an incredible impact on the world all around them. And just at the end of Acts chapter 2, after quite an extraordinary story, Luke pauses just for a moment and with these five or six summary verses gives us a tantalizing glimpse of what life was like as part of that new community. And we see in these verses, therefore, the pattern of this high-impact church, the way they ordered their lives, the things that they did and shared together, the signs, if you like, that indicate that the church was alive with the Holy Spirit, things that you'd expect to see in a community of God's people where God's Spirit had been poured out, it's all there. And as you've got it in front of you, I'd love you to notice straight away that written, as it were, writ large over these verses are two words that are the lifeblood of any high-impact church. Two words that we have also sought to organize our life around here at Bullington. They are, of course, mission, making Jesus known, and maturity, knowing Jesus better. These two words defined their raison d'etre, their reason to be, and these two words still today define our very reason for existing. And when either word slips from the centre of our community, we cease to fully be the church God is calling us to be. So, for example, verse 46 is about them growing in maturity, and verse 47 is about them growing in mission. Like a stick of rock, if you break open the middle of this church, there you'll find mission or maturity or both stamped at the middle of it. Break open Burlington at any point, and if mission and maturity is not stamped either both or either one of those, then we're caught up in things we've got no time or energy or actually little reason in being about. As we know, we represent it here in our community with the steps, the journey that people are making, journey towards becoming fully devoted followers of Christ, journeying through mission and on into maturity. And let's bed all this down just before we get into the verses themselves, because it's really important, I think, for us to understand. How do we keep these two things right at the heart of what we do? Or you might ask another question, why should we put these two things right at the heart of what we do? We put them right at the heart because Jesus' life and ministry and the calling that he gave the church put these two things right at the heart. Jesus, you'll remember, left us with two major injunctions. The first we call the Great Commission. 
Go, says Jesus, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There it is, mission that crosses every culture, as we talked about last week. Mission that's contextualized, quite literally the verse says, in your ordinary everyday going about, make disciples of all peoples. Fantastic. But he also left us, not just the great commission, but the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. In other words, to bring the whole of your life into an undevoted uh, passion towards, uh, a totally devoted passion towards Jesus. So at the heart of Jesus, the heart of his ministry, the heart of what he left the church to do. Remember in Acts chapter 1, we are called to continue everything that Jesus began to do and teach. Mission and maturity are there right at the heart. We need both. Without mission, this church will die. Without maturity, there'll be no one here to do mission. They go hand in hand. So with that uh, in our minds as a background, let's get into these verses. I hope they're open now in front of you. Verse 42, they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. Here was a high energy, high passion committed church. And you'll know if you just flick ahead to verse 46 that their devotion was not confined to a particular time of the week, perhaps Sunday mornings and Tuesday evenings or whatever it might be for you, but every day, verse 6. In fact, as you go through the story of Acts, you'll notice that the word daily and every day appears all too commonly. They were a 24-7 community. It was not just at certain times or when they were together, but through all times and in all ways, they were seeking to be this kind of community, one of high energy and passion. There are few people uh, in today's world more passionate and exhibiting more energy towards the local church than a man called Bill Hybels, who's the senior pastor of Willow Creek Community Church in South Barrington. And I remember a a story that he told now many years ago that has struck me uh, and struck a chord with me then and kind of lives with me now. Uh, And he said that he grew up in a church that was full of successful people in life and business. And it was that kind of community and they gathered on a Sunday to do church. Yet he said the church itself was dying. And he made the comment that here were people that in their business that would get up early and stay up late in order to be sure that it would succeed. These were people that would skip meals in order to make an important contact. They'd spend hours anticipating the next break. They would spend hours anticipating the next downturn and working hard as to how they would beat it. And he said people like that who would stop at absolutely nothing to be certain that their life and their business flourished, these people, they gathered together on a Sunday. Intelligent, successful, influential, making things happen kind of people. And he said they would say to one another, this church is dying. Oh well, churches die. That happens. And he could not understand Why people who would move heaven and earth, that their life should succeed, that their business should succeed, would go, hey, the church, it happens. And he says, was what they were doing in business more important 
than the purpose of their church? Was their product or service of greater value than what the church was living for? Was their business success more important than kingdom success? And it's not that our devotion to our business or to our lives or any of those things is wrong and misplaced. But should we not be devoted with even greater passion, in fact, greater passion than this world sees anywhere else, to enabling the gift that God has given this world, namely the church, to transform this world? Should we not give as much, not greater passion to see the church alive and thriving? Because we believe in our hearts that the church is the hope of the world. And so they devoted themselves. They understood in Jesus because they'd seen him die and they'd seen him come back to life. They understood in him there was the hope of the world and he'd given them that hope to transmit. How could they not work at this thing with all of their passion and all of their energy, not for their sakes, but for the sake of the world? And so they devoted themselves. What to? To the apostles' teaching. To the apostles' teaching. The pattern of a high-impact church focused on the Word. They didn't have the Bible as we have it. They had the Old Testament, of course, and the apostles' teaching. But they were devoted to it. A responsibility here for both leaders and learners in our community. Not forgetting, of course, that a leader can never lead without continually being a learner. So what were the apostles teaching? Well, sometimes you will know if you uh, read this kind of stuff that in the, in the Christian world there might be a, a new book or a new article or a significant conference that pushes our understanding about uh, some aspect of, of our faith or church life in a particular new direction. And everybody's raving and talking about it. It's on blogs and websites and in magazines and, and so on. Well, what have the disciples been doing just before these moments? Actually, what the disciples had been doing is spending 40 days, they'd had a 40-day conference with Jesus where he had spoken to them about the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 1 reminds us about that. That he'd spent the 40 days showing himself that he was alive and talking to them about the kingdom of God. Luke gives us a little bit more insight at the end of the first volume of this two-volume Luke-Acts scheme. And he says that that Jesus spent most of his time during those 40 days helping them understand from the whole of the Bible how every single page pointed to Jesus. Can you imagine being at a 40-day conference where Jesus taught you all day, each day? Can you imagine Jesus helping you to see from every page of the Bible how it speaks about himself? You maybe, you know what it's like when God speaks to your heart, when your heart's on fire, when you're cut to the heart, as uh, Acts says in chapter 2, or as, uh, as the people walking to Emmaus says at the end of Luke, our hearts were burning within us as God was speaking to us. Can you imagine how burning their heart was after 40 days of Jesus, just on the Bible? So what are these apostles teaching? It was all about Jesus. 
That's what they were full of. That's what was alive in their understanding. These disciples who hardly could have taught a thing a few months ago were now packed, crammed full with how Jesus oozed every page of Scripture, how the Bible was always pointing to Jesus and always explaining him on into the New Testament. The pattern of a high-impact church. They devoted themselves to the focus of Jesus. That's what the teaching was all about. You need to pray that when I speak, the truth of Jesus comes out. You need to pray that in your small groups, the truth of Jesus is what's uh, illuminated and honoured and respected and listened to. We need to pray that in our coming and in our going, it's Jesus, all about Jesus. And more than leaders, we need to create a culture where we're always learning. Am I learning more about Jesus right now? Am I learning more about him? Do I know more about him than I did last year? And much more importantly, do I know him more than I did this time last year? So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. This was a place of welcome. Their fellowship embraced one another in welcome and in so much more. If you've got the verses open in front of you, you'll see that four of the six verses talk about relationships. This high-impact church had the quality of their relationships right at its core. In business, relationships might be thought of as only necessary to get the job done. But in the church, relationships are at the heart of who we are. We are defined by them. Who said that? Jesus said that. By the quality of your love, of your relationship, people will know or otherwise. And actually, sometimes in business, if you go into a particular shop, you might have bought something that was wrong at Christmas and you've taken it back and the customer service was lousy. Or the customer service was really good. You actually don't think very much about the quality of the relationships of the people within the customer services department. What you want to know is have they delivered? This church can only deliver by the quality of its relationships. And intelligent business understands that as well. The relationships are manifestly important here. They're part of the job of knowing Jesus and making him known. The call on our lives is to build a community here so in love with Jesus that we cannot possibly be not in love with each other. Why? Because at the heart of this whole universe is a God who is in relationship with himself. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. A perfect, intimate relationship. The posture of that relationship is not closed. They're not in it for themselves. The posture of that relationship is open incredibly to welcome in you and me. That's what Jesus prayed, didn't he? Towards the end of his life, he said, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, just as we're together in this incredible relationship that has always been true since the foundation of the world because God has always been there in this relationship that was only broken for those hours on the cross. As we are in that relationship, may they also be in us. I think one of the most incredible phrases in the whole of the Bible. That God himself should invite us, this posture of welcome, into this deepest relationship ever with him. 
And so we must ask ourselves, I think, are we living in a posture of welcome? Am I living in a way that draws people into relationship with me? Am I living in a way that celebrates being known and knowing others? I guess, therefore, the mark of some authenticity here might be measured by how bothered are we when someone new walks through the door. What great timing. Diana's not new, she was just walking through the door. Now we might say, hey, it's really difficult to have a positive, sort of welcoming attitude to someone who walks through the door, because I don't know if they're new or not. Well, I think that kind of misses the point. It doesn't matter whether we've been here five minutes or for 50 years. The question is, are we adopting a posture of welcome to each other? Are we living in an attitude of fellowship? whether it's for the first time or for the nth time, is my life in fellowship mode? Am I willing to be known? Am I willing to know others? And so welcome Christ more deeply among us. And remember, this was a 24-7 church. This wasn't the way they decided they'd live for an hour and a half or whatever on a Sunday morning or at certain times during the week when they were together. uh, uh, Associated behaviour to do with certain buildings or times. This was the way they lived in this welcoming posture. And in these verses are some of the authenticating marks of living in that kind of posture of welcome. And Alan's alluded to some of them. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and good they gave to anyone as he had need. These are disturbing verses, aren't they? They must be, because I don't know anyone here living that way. Myself included. That's not in any sense a judgment on us. That's just looking at what we read here and recognising the reality of where we are. There is a a difference going on between what we read there in their experience and what is our experience today. These verses are suggesting a level of togetherness way beyond our known experience. And I think one of the reasons why these verses are so disturbing is because so easily in our context we focus on me and mine. The quickest way to start a fight in our house is to say, that's mine. It doesn't matter that the object hasn't been used for months. It doesn't matter that the object is no longer worth an absolute sausage. But if you say, that's mine, you can cause a riot. And sometimes the children join in as well. (laughs) You see, we're all anxious to be absolutely clear that things are mine. We like it that way. And so when we lend someone a book, we write our name on the inside cover. Might just as well say, don't you forget, that book's mine. Is that my CD you're playing? Is that my pen you're using? Is that my mug, my whatever it might be? We put fences around our houses. Don't you forget, this place is mine. We protect it, insure it, guard it, count it, keep it mine. And we've become possessed with possessions. 
And how easily we live by that value. What was marked by this community? There was another power so powerfully at work that it had broken the power of their age and our age, the power of materialism. It's mine, I need it, I have to have it. That power was supremely broken in these people. And that must have been an incredibly authenticating mark in a world where what is ours and what isn't is always incredibly important. So what do we do with these verses? Well, we could dumb them down, of course, as I've been saying. Reduce them to something somehow a little more acceptable than our own experience. Stephen Gorkroger makes the point, I think, very powerful. He says, we may feel justified in reducing everything in common to sharing a few things and selling their possessions to trying to be generous. But we ought to note that we've also managed to reduce wonders and miraculous signs to no one was converted, but God really blessed us. Was it their radical fellowship that released radical power? Question. What will break the power of our age? If we are gripped by the power of our age, we will not be gripped by the power of the age to come. We know that, don't we? Jesus said it's simple. You serve God or money. Serve God or things. You can't do both. But I love doing both, don't you? No, it's just me. Suddenly I feel very lonely and isolated up here. But I'm big enough to take that and I know that you're not telling the truth. It's mine. And God said, whoa, whoa, let's break all that stuff. Let's break the power of this age. That the power of the age to come might break us. Please God. Hallelujah. However that might look like. The situation is complicated in Acts. They didn't all sell everything all of the time. It's not some communist state uh, of duty. But what was going on was so overwhelmingly powerful that they no longer were gripped by the things that so often grip us. And a power of a different age was gripping their lives. And in the midst of their fellowship, food is important. We'll, We'll appreciate that. When we food is so important, they ate together. Food is really important in God's kingdom agenda. You can trace it through the Bible how food is given not simply for us to consume, but as a means through which we can connect with one another. And we know in our experience how true it is that food breaks down barriers, how food creates a climate for that connection in the Spirit. It's why we have fellowship meals next Sunday. I hope you're coming next Sunday. It's important spiritually. Hey, it's not about the food. It's about much more than the food. It's important for us to do it together. The launch meal next month as we start our Lent series. It's important for us to do it together. It's why Kerry and I intentionally have a meal regularly with our closest friends because it breaks something. It opens us up to something. It's why we have meals with the ministry team and so on. We need to feast together because it's so much more than feasting. I have to say that some of my most significant moments have been around a meal. You might say, that says more about you, Simon. But I'm not so sure. And if you think food is important, you'll be reminded, of course, that homes are important too. They met in their homes with glad and sincere hearts. And later on in the New Testament, uh, Peter puts it a bit more forcefully. He says, just get on and do it without grumbling. 
Practice hospitality without grumbling. Stop making a fuss. Just get on it. And I understand why he does that. You see, there is something different about meeting people in their homes. Spending half an hour with someone in their home is worth two years of a handshake on the door of a church. And that's true for you as well. You see, being in someone's home is much deeper, it's more personal, it's more revealing. It's there in homes that real fellowship will thrive. So I want to ask you, if I may be so bold, is your home part of the ministry of this church? Is your home part of the ministry of this church? You see, I've never been in a home, and I think I've probably been in most your homes, almost all of your homes, that couldn't be used for the ministry of God's purpose in this community. And we worry about all kinds of stuff. We're so self-conscious. Hey, it's too small, it's too untidy, it's too this, it's too that. But God can use that. Have people around your table as often as you can. Not for fast food, but for feasting. For feasting on their lives. Letting them feast on yours. For sharing and connecting. See, it doesn't matter whether you can cook. Invite them anyway. They're not coming for the food. Now you know that, don't you? When someone invites you for a meal to their house, you do not weigh up whether you're going to come on the quality of the cooking. Do you? You don't. Unless you've had a very bad experience. And then you might. A couple of people I need to talk to. No, no, I'm just kidding. You don't, you go, am I free? You know, can we work this out? Thank you for inviting me. You feel touched that someone should extend that too. If they want a decent meal, they'll go to a restaurant. Even then it's a bit dodgy these days. But it's not about the food. But it is about feasting. And so is your home part of the ministry of this church? You see, it's in our homes that new things happen. It was through the 300 years of the earliest church when once they were stopped meeting in the temple, they only had each other's homes. And the church was growing so fast in those days. Because maybe some of the barriers were just much more easily broken down as they met in each other's front rooms and so on. I'm thrilled by our small groups. I'm thrilled by the fact that most of our people who join our church get plugged into a small group straight away. I'm thrilled because of the deepening friendships that are happening there that would not happen if you only met here in this place. And sometimes I watch how people in a moment of need have a great wall of support around them. Because they'd chosen to develop friendships that would be real and meaningful when the weather was fine. And when the storm came, those friendships really counted. A few weeks ago, someone uh, was talking to me about how Burlington had helped them through a really difficult time. And we should celebrate that. In a godly sense, we should be proud when as a church community, we reflect just a little bit of what God's calling us to. But you know the truth, it wasn't Burlington at all. It was their small group that had been fantastic. And we need to celebrate that. I resonate with this church leader who tells a story, a very moving story, I think it is anyway, of how at the end, he says, I just finished preaching my weekend message uh, and I was standing at the front talking to people. A young married couple approached me, placed a blanketed bundle in my arms and asked me to pray for their baby. As I asked what the baby's name was, the mother pulled back the blanket that had covered the infant's face. I felt my knees begin to buckle. I thought I was going to faint. Had the father not steadied me, I may well have keeled over. In my arms was the most horribly deformed baby I had ever seen. The whole centre of her tiny face was caved in. As she kept breathing, I will never know. All I could say was, oh, oh my, oh my. Her name is Emily, said the mother. 
We've been told she has about six weeks to live, added the father. We'd like you to pray that before she dies, she will know and feel our love. Barely able to mouth the words, I whispered, let's pray. Together we prayed for Emily. Oh, did we pray. So I handed her back to her parents. I asked, is there anything we can do for you? Any way that we as a church can serve you during this time? The father responded with the words that still amaze me. He said, Bill, we're okay. Really we are. We've been in a loving small group for years. Our group members knew that this pregnancy had complications. They were at our house the night we learned the news. They were at the hospital when Emily was delivered. They helped us absorb the reality of the whole thing. They cleaned our house, fixed our meals when we brought her home. They prayed for us constantly and called us several times every day. They're helping us make plans for Emily's funeral. Just then, three other couples stepped forward and surrounded Emily and her parents. We always attend church together as a group, said one of the members. There's a picture I'll carry to my grave. A tight-knit huddle of loving brothers and sisters doing their best to soften one of the cruelest blows life can throw. After a group prayer, they all walked up the side aisle towards our lobby. Where I wondered as they left, would that family be? Where would they go? How would they handle this heartbreak without the church? There is nothing like the local church when it's working right. Its beauty is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. It comforts the grieving and heals the broken in the context of community. It builds bridges to seekers and offers truth to the confused. It provides resources to those in need. Opens its arms to the forgotten, the downtrodden, the disillusioned. It breaks the chains of addictions, frees the oppressed and offers belonging to the marginalized of this world. Whatever capacity for human suffering, the church has a greater capacity for healing and wholeness. The local church. The local church. So we think about this early church, the word, the welcome, and incredible worship. Every day, every day praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Praising God spontaneously, overwhelmingly. It seems to me that it was just overflowing praise. Praise that just came out of their new experience of God every day. Is our praise, is my praise like that, spontaneous, overflowing, or is it a duty? Something we do because we should. What a duty killer is to a relationship. Imagine for a moment if I buy Carrie flowers. You'll have to use your imagination. <laughs> you can find the number for the flower shop in my phone under F for flowers, under G for get out of trouble, and under I for I haven't got a clue what else to do. And if I was to buy her some flowers, I'd say, darling, here are some flowers. And I'm giving them to you for three strategic reasons. <laughs> strategic reason number one is that I'm your husband. Strategic reason number two is because it's our anniversary. And strategic reason number three is because husbands should give flowers to wives on their anniversary. Won't she be thrilled? You see, sometimes the way we do our Christian faith, the way we do church with our nice ordered services, you would think that God wants our duty, our ritual, our form. 
Herod doesn't want duty. She wants desire. God doesn't want form. He wants our passion of our hearts, our overflowing praise. How can my praise be like that so it flows naturally and easily throughout the days of my life? I think their answer is this. The more I discover how much God loves me, the easier it becomes to praise and worship Him back. Praise of Him and love of and his love of us seem to me to go hand in hand through the Bible. Here's just a few of them. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good, His love endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord. We're not big on shouting, are we? Just occurred to me there. Praise be to the Lord, for He showed His wonderful love to me when I was in a pursuit. Praise to the Lord, for He showed His love to me. And so we could go on. You can find them all yourselves. I will sing of your love to you, O Lord. I will sing praise. When we discover how much he loves us, the more we will long to love him back through praise and worship. And our problem is not so much that we struggle with spontaneous overflowing praise and worship. I think our problem is we don't really understand how much he loves us. And if you want to kickstart praise and worship in your life, don't try harder. Don't make it duty. Don't make it a more uh, uh, effort-filled ritual. If you want your life to be filled with praise and worship, take your eyes off the whole praise thing and focus on a God who loves you. A God who loves you. And can you see how the love of God supremely expressed in Jesus who came to the cross, and this community was all about devoted to the teaching of Jesus. And so it became a circle. The more they understood about Jesus and his love, the more they praised him. The more they praised him, the greater his power. The greater his power, the more they knew he loved him, and so on. All of these things in these verses go together. And that's an important reminder. You can't be really good into the word bit, oh, I love the Bible, but bar humbug to praise and worship. And you can't be, hey, I really love lots of people and I like having meals together, but I'm not sure about learning about Jesus. It all goes together. And if you want to get one of these sorted out in your life, but you're not prepared to do the others, it's like trying to climb Everest without any oxygen. You'll never do it. All of these things together, interrelated, they're all part of the package, as are, incidentally, wonders. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Have you noticed that the parts of the church in the world that have trouble with signs and wonders are the parts of the church that don't see any? All the debates about signs and wonders, all the people that make comments about it are often in places when they're seeing precious little. And all the people that are seeing signs and wonders are so busy enjoying them they haven't got time to write about those people who think they don't exist. Because they do, because they're... You see, it seems to me, right, that if you read the Bible, for 1,500 years over the Bible was written, on every page, God did something pretty wonderful, didn't he? And I can't find anywhere in the Bible that said at the end of writing the Bible, God changed and doesn't do wonderful things anymore. You see, I think the point is that wonders are normal for God, they're just not normal for us. And I want God to move in more normal ways. Just me, then. Yeah, just me. We're really unsure about that, aren't we? But the power came on this church. Well, hey, we can't be in a high-impact church without any power. You know, look at us. You know, look around for a minute. Look at me. We're not going to do it by ourselves, are we? No, no, no. Okay, come if you can buy into that. So, you see, 
There was this power, and it was all locked in. They, 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 they focused on Jesus, okay? So that built their faith in a God of love, so they would praise him. That built more faith. Because they had faith, the power came. That showed them more of Jesus. More people got saved. That excited them a bit more. More praise, more love, more fellowship. And so it went on. All of these things together. You see, expectation became part of the posture of this church in Acts. And if we take Acts seriously, expectation, I think, needs to be the posture of our church. And if we're to take what Jesus said seriously, then uh, uh, expectation needs to be the posture of our lives. You see, Jesus was in a place, and and it goes like this. He didn't do very much. He didn't do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Hey, they got what they expected. Can you imagine anything worse than getting what you expect? They got what they expected. I'm saying, God, break my expectation because I don't want what I expect. I want that stuff in that verse of a church text a few years ago, immeasurably more than all we can think or imagine or dream or whatever because of his power that is we're already at work within us. They got what they expected. What do we expect? Remember, though, hey, they're only signs, aren't they? And nothing much, really. They're only signs. However fantastic the raising of Lazarus, one day he died again. However amazing it was that the 5,000 got fed, the next day they were all hungry. The real miracle is left to the end of these verses. The miracle of being raised to new life that you will never die. The miracle of being fed on living bread such that you will never go hungry again. The miracle of drinking living water that you might never thirst from now on into eternity. That's the real miracle, isn't it? And that was happening every single day in this high-impact church. Daily the Lord was doing that miracle in people's lives and adding to their number because the pattern of a high-impact church cannot fail to be a witness. Let's be that church. Let's be that church. With that miracle above all is seen every day and celebrated every day. And if there are other things that God does along the way, hey, we'll enjoy those as well. But this is the real deal. And it all points to that as these verses move to this climax. Let's be that church. And let's pray. Father, we're asking... Because it's all we can do. We can't come to you any different from the way that we are. We come just as we are. And we say, Lord God, if it be in your will and purpose, and we believe from your word through every page that it's your will and purpose to win lost people out of darkness, that it's your will and purpose for your church to be the chosen instrument to bring transformation to people's lives and communities, to be healing in a broken world, to be hope where there is so much hopelessness. We believe that's your heart. We want to pattern that life together so that we become everything you're asking of us. Would you do that? Lord, would you raise my expectation? Would you increase my devotion to the truth about Jesus? Would you help me to take fellowship much more seriously? This is the family you have given me. Increase my love for my church family. We pray that for ourselves and for each other but in word and welcome and worship that just overflows day after day. We become a church that witnesses, that witnesses your wonders and becomes a witness to the greatest wonder, the God who loved us and gave himself for us. 
that's changing lives. To that end, Lord, we pray that you count us in. To that end, Lord, we pray that you'd allow us to be a part of all that you are doing. 